Good morning. It's good to see you all, and we continue our study in Titus. Uh, just before we begin, uh, our uh, friend Lindy Robertson, who normally has sat back there with his father, uh, some of you know he has experienced uh, multiple bypass surgery and is recovering from that surgery. And uh, then his father died this week. And uh, so they were almost always seen together, sitting right back there, uh, Lindy Robertson Sr. and Lindy Robertson Jr. Uh, his father had been in decline for quite a while. And uh, Mary and I had known them, I guess, for 30 plus years. And uh, they had been helped to many, especially the seminary students, we especially appreciate them. And uh, anyway, especially for Lindy, uh, he's, he has some family around him as he's continuing to recover. And as the family's also gathering to grieve the loss of uh, their patriarch. So we'll be praying especially for the Robertson family. And uh, I, Mary, I lost her, there she is. The funeral's Tuesday morning. What time? Okay, at? Okay, all right, good. Tuesday morning at 11 at the Owen Funeral Home on Taylorsville Road. All right, let's pray together. Father, we're always thankful beyond words that you allow us to come together to study your word. We take it for granted because we are in the habit of doing so. And Father, we pray that uh, even though it is a godly habit, we thank you for the habit. We pray that we will never grow habitually unthankful uh, or lack amazement at the wonder that we get to come and hear you speak to us. Father, this morning we pray for our brother Lindy, uh, that you'll be with his heart, his physical heart, as you repair his heart. And Father, we pray that you will be with his heart as he grieves the loss of his father, having just a few years ago lost his mother. And uh, Father, we pray that he would know that the family here at Third Avenue Baptist Church loves him and is praying for him and is alongside him in this time. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We have been looking at the letter to Titus, and uh, you look at it and you say, well, you could read that in just a matter of a couple of minutes. You could read it aloud very quickly, but we're taking a few weeks to look at it after having concluded a verse-by-verse -verse study of Leviticus. And it's hard to imagine a portion of Scripture less Levitical uh, than just in terms of, say, the, the language and the, the structure. This is a letter from the Apostle Paul to a specific early church, but intended for the entire church. That's why it is to us. Now, we're headed into a very interesting territory, and it's a somewhat troubling territory. Just to be honest, there are all kinds of little avenues here that, uh, that could challenge us as we're looking at this. We uh, have been looking at the fact that it's a crisis that has occasioned Paul to send Titus to Crete, and it is a, a crisis, theological crisis, moral, congregational crisis, that has uh, shaken the entire ministry there in Crete. The longer we go into the passage, the more apparent it becomes. This morning, the words of judgment that we're going to see from the Apostle Paul are about as strong as anything we could imagine. So as we are in Titus, we begin now with verse 10. 
For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Now, we're going to stop there for a moment. You look at those two sentences, very heavy indictment. But the most important thing to look backwards is by seeing verse 9. Because remember, when we were together last, we were looking at the qualifications for elders and, and, and deacons, and in particular, the qualifications for church leadership that the Apostle Paul was articulating. And, and we need to give some attention to verse 9 as the necessary background for verse 10. In verse 5, Paul had said, This is why I left you in Crete, so that I might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy or gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, verse 9 is one of those double-edged verses that uh, it's tempting to see just with one edge. But it, in this context, it's absolutely vital we see both of, the, both of the points being made here. This is the summary of the qualifications for elders. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught. Now, what's the trustworthy word? Is that Scripture? Yes, it is Scripture, but it is also the apostolic word, meaning the apostolic doctrine. So this means that the first qualification of an elder after those moral and familial qualifications is that he, being able to teach, holds firmly to the trustworthy word. And so what's so important with verse 9 is that it says that the final kind of climactic qualification is theological. You don't appoint those who teach who will not teach the trustworthy word. The faith once for all delivered to the saints, it is described elsewhere. The message handed down from Christ to the apostles and from the apostles to us. That continuity is absolutely vital. And it's, it's vital wherever Christianity is manifested. It, it's vital in a congregation, first of all. It's vital in any work by a congregation or by congregations. If you're going to gather together as congregations, have a mission board, that mission board, those missionaries, they better reflect just this. Those who will be sent out to plant churches, they better look just like this. We have come to understand that the late problem closer to us in contemporary events is the rise of uh, enormous theological rebellion, the outright castigation and denial of that faith once for all delivered to the saints. The entire point of theological liberalism, as it arose especially in the 19th century, it had roots before that, of course, but in the 19th century, the theological liberalism that so affected so many churches, institutions, and denominations into the 20th century, the, the entire premise was that Christianity was burdened with doctrines that simply can't survive scrutiny in the modern age. That's it. And it's not just that they lacked credibility, but were morally odious. And I mentioned to you before that the, the first line of, of this liberal logic was directed to hell. 
And uh, that happened as far back as the 18th century in the United States, and that was part of the great um, uh, controversies over Unitarianism in many of the colonies uh, in the United States. The, the first vestige of this theological liberalism was, we, we can't believe in a God who would do that. Now, if you can't believe, you put yourself in a position where you say you can't believe in a God who would do that. We have a few problems because the Bible clearly presents him as doing that. And you actually have a huge problem with Jesus because just in terms of the quantity, Jesus said more about hell than about heaven. His statements about hell are incredibly clear and strong. And and so you look at that and you say, well, okay, then if, if you're going to follow down that road, then you have to have a new way of looking at Scripture, which puts, you know, some modern interpreter in the position of deciding what can stay and what must go. And uh, by the time Harry Emerson Fosdick, the famous liberal preacher, delivered his lectures at uh, Yale, his Beecher lectures, when he opened by saying for the modern preacher, the Bible is basically a problem. And he actually just said that out loud. Uh, by the time you get there, there are no doctrines left in the bag. Now, that's not to say what we need is a halfway liberalism. The methodology is the problem. But this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about. It's, it's a trustworthy word. You, Christianity is a composite whole. You either receive it or you do not. And it begins with the authority of Christ in the church. And if you deny what Christ affirms, well, let's put it this way, uh, you are not a Christian by any historic Christian definition. But this is what you see in the news just this week. I've had to deal with this, you know, uh, where you have people identified as Christians, and uh, this is what they say. And uh, it bears no resemblance to Christianity, but nonetheless, for National Public Radio, they're just as credible as someone who holds to historic Christianity. Uh, After all, they got Christian in their name. They identify as Christians. Anyway, the Apostle Paul could not be more clear there in verse 9, which makes verse 10 uh, make a great deal more impact. I'm just going to read 9 and 10 together. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Now, one of the gifts to us, and it's part of the providence, you know, in the fullness of time, in the Fullness of time, God sent His Son, Paul tells us. And that's, a, that's a, a wonderful short summary of the biblical pattern of promise and fulfillment in the fullness of time. And, and, you know, looking backwards, we can see some of the elements that made that time so full, so opportune for the coming of the Savior. The Roman Empire actually provided uh, relative peace and stability throughout the world so that the early Christian church could actually spread. The, the Romans had built the roads. There was, there was uh, commerce on both the seas and, and by land. The Romans had built highways that, uh, by the standards of the day, allowed people to get from one place to another. There was a lingua franca. Uh, and, and the most important thing to recognize is that for those who were writing, the lingua franca at this time is what remains from the Greek civilization and Koine Greek as we know it, the language in which the New Testament was written, was a stable, elegant, incredibly useful language 
that would have been understood throughout the entire Mediterranean era, simply because of the Greek influence. Now, in the medieval period, Latin will supplant Greek, but in this period, it is still Greek that is the language of, uh, of serious thought. If you, want, if you want to make this kind of argument, you, you're going to write in Greek. Now, Greek is a very straightforward language. It includes nuance, to be sure, but there's a directness in Greek that happens to be helpfully kind of matched by a directness in English. And uh, you see that in a passage like this. Uh, directness meets directness. You have the positive stated in verse 9, as we have seen, holding to the trustworthy word uh, so that you may be able to give instruction sound, not, not just doctrine, but sound doctrine, healthy doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So again, the positive, teach the sound doctrine. The negative, rebuke those who deserve rebuke, who contradict the trustworthy word. Okay, so that's about to happen real fast. <laughs> and so we, we, we have just read a little bit of it. We know what's coming, but the vehemence is, uh, well, it's, it's shocking, I think. It, it, if it doesn't shock, it should. This is, this is the Apostle Paul writing, and it, it, it gets worse. Verse 10, for there are many who are, listen to these words, insubordinate. Now, insubordinate is an interesting word. I heard this when I was in elementary school and no one had defined the word. I just knew it was horribly bad. It was not a word my parents used. Now, they had other words to describe the same thing. They would have said disobedient or whatever, but I can remember a teacher, Mrs. Lewis in the third grade. In fact, she may have been Miss Lewis. When you're in the third grade, you really don't know a whole lot of the difference, but nonetheless, I will simply say that this is going back a long time in history. This is going back to the mid-1960s, and she was already 210 years old, we thought. So I have no idea how old she was, but to a bunch of eight-year-olds in the 1960s, she looked ancient of days. And when she got mad at a student, she would say, stop being insubordinate. Well, a little vocabulary would have helped. Uh, I had no idea what insubordinate was, but evidently it was bad. And I was determined never to be insubordinate, not knowing exactly what that meant. It means rebellious against authority. It, it, it means breaking the rules. It means refusing to obey. All those things are there. So you'll notice how quickly that comes here. The very first thing Paul says in this train of indictments is that they are insubordinate. Well, that, that raises an interesting question, and, and that comes back to something else. Insubordination is both an act and an attitude. So there's an insubordinate attitude, which is just rebellious to authority. And, and you've seen that. You know exactly what it looks like, uh, whether it's a three-year-old's face or, you know, someone considerably older. Insubordinate just means, you know, I just don't like any authority at all. I want no authority. And, uh, but insubordination can be a specific act of rebelling against. And any event, both are clearly included here. Where you find the rightly ordered church, you find people who are obedient and respectful, not insubordinate. And obedient to what? Well, obedient to the word, obedient to the truth. But does that mean obedient to spiritual leaders? Well, yes, in some sense. Yes, uh, certainly acknowledging their spiritual leadership and following their spiritual leadership, not rebelling against it, knowing that all of us need to be eldered, all of us need to be pastored, all of us need to be shepherded. And so there is no human being who is above that. 
We are all in constant need of that. And we never outgrow that. We outgrow childhood. The Apostle Paul made that very clear. We don't speak as a child. We don't reason as a child. But to be an adult does not mean that you are just outside all authority. I mean, first of all, there's the authority of God, but God's authority is mediated through the structures that He's given. And we need those structures. Well, the ones who are creating so much trouble, and it implies trouble even in leadership to some extent, or at least those who have been appointed to positions of leadership have uh, abused those positions of leadership. There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, great Greek phrase. Lots of volume, lots of words, nothing there. And, you know, there's empty talkers that can be kind of just harmless, right? You tune them out if we're honest. But empty talkers can also be very dangerous uh, if they're subverting, basically, and making claims that turn out to be false. Spreading rumors and gossip and, and all of this, is just, that's just a part of the whole thing. There's no truth in it. That's, what, that's the emptiness, devoid of truth. Deceivers. Now, that's a stronger word than empty talkers. Empty talkers, you know, it's kind of an indirect dishonesty or deceit or subversion. But deceivers, now that's something completely different. They are deceiving. And, and by the way, this doesn't necessarily mean uh, just in terms of, say, a, a, a pastoral situation. This can mean deceiving about big doctrinal issues. And that becomes very clear in this passage, deceiving about big doctrinal issues. And you can see where that would be an invalidation of godly leadership. Now, these are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. And now that raises an interesting issue. The, the geographical location here is Crete. Now, Crete is one of the most ancient of all civilizations, part of the ancient uh, Greco-Roman empire. But even, even before the empires of either Greece or of Rome, Crete is still a populated island with an early civilization. We've talked about the fact that it was uh, divided into cities, um, and it's unusually metropolitan is the way they put it. Excuse me. It, uh, it has a good many cities, and, and it has a good many ports, not necessarily major ports, but again, they didn't, they didn't have major ships. So uh, there were all kinds of opportunities for commerce, and uh, Crete has been a divisive place from the beginning. And so I mean no uh, political you know, aspersion here, but uh, there have been several islands in the Mediterranean that have just been quite contested and fractious from the beginning. Sicily would be one of them. Crete would be another. And I'd say the same thing, just to say kind of a similar fractiousness. Uh, in Sicily today, uh, you could easily far more easily than you know, offend in a way that can be quite dangerous. Uh, there are loyalties and tribalisms and families and villages. And one of the things that was uh, written by someone just even recently about Sicily is that in Sicily, uh, so many of these towns and villages are empires unto themselves. So in other words, they're insiders and outsiders. It's not just like you're Sicilian, you're not Sicilian. If you're not from this village, then you're done. And it's sort of that way uh, in Crete. Uh, Crete has an older civilization. Now, one of the interesting things is, is that the party of the Judaizers is there. 
Now, that would indicate that there are Jewish people in Crete who have become believers and were identifying uh, as Christians, and they must be of some significant number. The party of the circumcision generally means uh, Jewish converts to Christianity who were seeking to continue a Jewish argument. Now, again, you know a great deal about all this New Testament background and the confusion of the gospel, and you know that when Paul says the party of the circumcision, he's speaking of the Judaizers who were seeking to bring believers under Jewish law. And uh, this is why we talked earlier about the fact that Paul here has sent Titus, who is Greek, as his emissary, rather than sending Timothy, who was Jewish. Now remember, the Apostle Paul had uh, Timothy circumcised as a believer. In fact, it says he did the circumcision as a believer not because it was necessary for him to be seen as a Christian, but because it was necessary for him to be seen as obediently Jewish, reverently Jewish. Um, his, his Christian testimony was different. Now, the Apostle Paul also made very clear that the circumcision was not necessary for Timothy's salvation. That's, that's not the point. But for his credibility and leadership, especially to those who had come from Judaism. There was going to be a huge stumbling block if someone who was seen as an absolutely unfaithful Jew is telling them how to be a faithful Christian. It's a delicate balance, isn't it? Just trying to figure all this out. The Apostle Paul sends Titus, and we're told Titus is uncircumcised. That's crucial here. So just given the background with Timothy... If the Apostle Paul is going to confront this directly, Timothy might not be the best messenger. Can we just say that? Because the Judaizers might say, look, that's exactly what we're talking about. Yeah, Timothy, you, you follow his example. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul said was not the point. And I guess to make that point, it's important to recognize that he sent Titus. Paul refers to these who are the enemies of the gospel as the party of the circumcision, and that means they're Judaizers. And there, there are those in the contemporary moment who might say, okay, let's look at that for a moment. That seems like making a whole big deal out of something that shouldn't be such a big deal. And I don't just mean circumcision, but the law. And so there may be a tendency in our part to say, look, there should just be some, uh, some uh, uh, leeway here. There should just be some, uh, some elasticity here. Some are going to be more attentive to being under the law. Others are going to be less attentive to being under the law, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, just, just understand that the Apostle Paul is very aware and wants Titus and wants the church to be aware that the problem is not just the Judaizing, you might say, applied to sanctification. It's the Judaizing applied to justification. That is the massive issue. And so it's a problem post-justification just in talking about sanctification. But this is not just about sanctification. It undercuts the gospel doctrine of justification by faith alone. If it's faith and, and that has to be a, a part of justification or a, 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 a prerequisite to justification, then there is a massive, massive problem. The problem is not just with the application of the gospel. The problem is with the gospel. That's why the Apostle Paul will speak of those who preach another gospel. The problem here in Crete is massive. It's just far more significant than I think most of us would recognize. It's far more significant theologically 
even than what we see, at least in urgency and in, uh, you might say, doctrinal gravity with uh, the, the general kinds of exhortations that are given to Timothy. Uh, Timothy's dealing with gossipy old women and those who are loose talkers and things like that. And uh, that sounds quite sexist, but that's what's in the text. Uh, they're gossipy old men too, but in this case, that's what he was dealing with. And uh, I mean, Titus is dealing with this outright heresy. Titus is dealing with those who are not Christians, who are posing as Christians. And the Apostle Paul is not happy. Now, at this point, by the way, several interpreters of Scripture have said, look, we understand why this is called the letter of Paul to Titus, because just following in the convention of how we name these letters, given the opening of the letter, that's exactly why we call it Titus, the same way we call First and Second Timothy, Timothy. And there's a real good reason that we do that, because these pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, are to the entire church, vital to the entire church. But, as several interpreters have pointed out, there's a sense in which if we didn't know that, we'd be tempted to think this is the letter to Crete because it is very Crete-specific. You say, how specific? Well, hold on. Verse 11 says, They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Okay? That happens to be a reference to something that I think we need to think about for just a moment and before we even go on to the Cretans. And, and that is that it says they're upsetting whole families, okay? Fascinating. You look at this congregation. This congregation is unique, at least in part, uh, to being a part of, number one, a, a, a product of a very mobile society. We took a, if you could just see kind of a, you know, quote bubble over every head here with the place that everyone in this room was born or where they lived, say, five years ago, you're going to see a lot of places. In the early church, it was rare to see something like that. Just about everyone, the, the, the quote bubble over almost everyone's head in Crete would have said Crete. And uh, like so many others, especially in the ancient world, but particularly in the Mediterranean world, extended family is massive, and now we're back to Sicily. Uh, extended family is, is tr almost tribal, and, and that's why they're upsetting whole families. So the fractionists in the church, and again, all you have to think of is the fractionists of the Mediterranean culture. The fractiousness of family versus family in this, the church is just being torn apart. The, the church is just absolutely being torn apart. And here I'm going to interject something. I didn't intend to interject, but here I go. So this is a little dangerous, but I'm going to do it. The Catholic Church's way of overcoming or addressing that kind of fractiousness is sacramentalism. Okay? The institutional reality of the Roman Catholic Church and sacramentalism. Sacramentalism works in so many different ways. But one of the ways it works is that it is, uh, it, it's automatic. It's 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 procedural, it's, uh, and, and, and with the liturgy, it's, it simply repeats such that everyone receives the same sacrament, you know, here it is, this is it, it's priestly, it's, it's, it's done by a priest, the 
Grace is supposedly mediated absolutely through the sacrament. And so you understand how that would resolve a lot of issues that preaching wouldn't resolve. Does that make clear? In other words, if, if your mode of ministry is sacramental and priestly rather than focused on the sermon, you can, get, you can create a lot of, or at least you can avoid a lot of doctrinal trouble just by not dealing with it. <laughs> but if you're going to preach, well, you're going to blow something up. That's the bottom line. And so that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying to Titus. You know, these, these, these men are to teach the Word. They are to apply the Word. They are to teach the trustworthy Word. And uh, that, that having been done wrongly with uh, heresy and false teaching and especially Judaizing mixed into this with uh, emphasis upon the law and the gospel in terms of the law being necessary in terms of the Salvation and sanctification of believers in this sense. He's just, uh, the Apostle Paul says, this is, this is not working. This is not working. It's, it's uh, upsetting entire families. And they're teaching for shameful gain what no one ought to teach. Now look next. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. We'll continue. All right. If there are any visitors from Crete here this morning, we just welcome you. Want you to know how glad we are to have you uh, here at Third Avenue Baptist Church. Uh, all Cretans are liars. And uh, that it's, they're also evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Uh, so uh, all the rest of you, please watch said Cretans the entirety of the service until they are safely out of the building. Uh, the one of their own was Epimenides. And he said something almost exactly like this. The Apostle Paul is quoting this accurately, that all Cretans are liars, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and that was a very handy thing for the Apostle Paul to cite since a Cretan had said this about Cretans, which leads, by the way, to one of the things I enjoy when I teach apologetics or I teach uh, philosophy, especially epistemology, uh, it's just a fun thing. It's the Cretan paradox. And that is, if a Cretan tells you he's lying, is he telling you the truth? Okay? That is fantastic with, like, high schoolers. Uh, you know, if, if all Cretans do is lie, then if they say, I'm lying, ah, there he goes again. You know, in other words, so it, it, it's just a, a an philosophical exercise uh, in, in the way language works and in the way true statements are made and evaluated. But uh, this... Uh, this criticism of the Cretans, the Apostle Paul says, look, even one of their own wrote this. By the way, that was, a, that was centuries before the Apostle Paul. So, in other words, Crete had such a reputation something like 600 years before Paul wrote this letter to Titus. Going back to Epimenides, of high, one of the high watermarks of the Greek civilization. The words, if... If you're not shocked, you're not hearing him. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. You know, these are, those, those are not nice. Those are not nice. Um, I, I'm sorry, i got to have a grandson moment here. Uh, Benjamin is, is in the uh, first grade. 
And we get reports. We're always asking, you know, how are things going or whatever. Well, he goes to a classical Christian school, and for some classical Christian reason, I'm sure perfectly understandable, the children were not allowed to pass out Valentines in the classroom. So some of them came with all their Valentines to pass out, couldn't pass out their Valentines. And you know the rule, everybody has to get a Valentine. You know, everybody loves everybody. But, you know, I, we used to get them. I don't know, some of you are old enough to remember the, the, the foil envelopes that came in. I don't know why they were, I mean, a, a wax paper. That's what I meant to say, a wax paper envelopes that came in. I don't know why, probably because it's cheap. Uh, but, you know, we all handed everybody a Valentine. So, Benjamin, not, not in an insubordinate way, I want to say, but when later asked to describe, you know, the policy, he said, it's wrong and it's rude. And, uh, you know, <laughs> did I get that right? Oh, mean and rude. It's mean. There you go. That sounds more like him. It's, it's mean and it's rude. And you just go, where does rude come from for a first grader? You know, that's just really interesting. I don't, I don't really know what he means by rude, but, you know, it is, it's just mean and rude. I'm sorry. You don't let us pass out our Valentines. And, and just thank goodness he didn't, like, stand up in the class and go, that's mean and rude. That would have been insubordinate. But he, uh, he nonetheless had made that observation. But when you look at this, you go, okay, mean and rude. That, man, he meant that pretty strong. But evil beasts, lazy gluttons, Oh, I mean, this is a really strong word. First of all, evil and beast, put that together. Think, uh, you know, tiger, lion, evil. And, and, and then lazy glutton. You know, you don't always pair those two together. But this is a very strong word that's used in the Bible in both Testaments. And it means feeding your own passions. It, it doesn't necessarily mean just, you know, at mealtime. It just means those who feed the flesh, those who feed their own passions. All this to say, if you are looking at language in the New Testament, it's very difficult to imagine language much stronger than this in terms of moral judgment. As, as a matter of fact, I have to tell you, even preparing to talk about this and to teach this passage today, I was shocked again. I mean, I'm just a little bit embarrassed by this. I don't I want to be really clear. It's just, uh, I guess the thought that came to me last night was, how do you preach this in Crete? I mean that actually. Well, let's just say you were on a Third Avenue mission trip to Crete. It's all packed up. Let's get our passports ready. Let's go to Crete. You gonna preach in this passage? I just, just kind of a test case. Uh, well, the answer is this is the word of God, and it's for the entire church. But this problem emerged in this way in this pastoral occasion in Crete, and it brought forth this incredibly clear passage of judgment. And Apostle Paul goes on. This testimony is true, which is another way of saying, I, I just want you to know, I was not saying that lightly. This is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Okay, now that, that's a little bit of a swerve too. I mean, let's just be honest. I mean, uh, let's just say that uh, we're in a business meeting, a members meeting, 
So members meeting and, uh, uh, you know, the elders have been meeting. Uh, pastor is leading us in a members meeting. And he says, look, we need to deal with some people. They uh, are uh, gluttons, lazy gluttons, evil beasts, and always lying. Well, I mean, that would sound like grounds for removal from the, from the fellowship of the church. I mean, it's really hard to back off the lazy glutton, evil beast. I mean, I've never been in a church discipline setting where they said, well, we got evil beasts in the church. We need to deal with the evil beasts. Uh, it's really hard to know to back off of that. You know, we're very glad here. Brother here was identified two years ago, but church discipline is an evil beast. And we just want to thank, thank the grace and mercy of God. Not an evil beast now. You know, it's just, whoa, how do you back off an evil beast? But here, just notice this. exactly what the Apostle Paul does. He doesn't back off the indictment, but he says, rebuke them that they may be corrected and be sound in faith. It's an astounding statement. So let me put it this way. Here is something that, that people on the mission field right now face and have faced, and, and, and it's not just limited to the mission field, but the encounter between belief and unbelief on the mission field, especially in new mission fields, especially in places where there are animistic and other forms of, uh, of religion. And so what's, what's going on is that the gospel is being preached in a context in which there are other presuppositions. It, it, it can get really, really hot. And uh, so I've had many missionaries who are absolutely gospel committed, the kind of missionaries we've sent out from this church who say, look, here's one of the most difficult things. Here's one of the most difficult things. Uh, when you preach the gospel where it is ne nothing like it's ever been heard before, and there's some form of animism, some form of, of, of strong religious practice, some form of, uh, uh, of uh, you know, either, I'm, I'm trying to think of the right word to use here. Let's just say a very structured religious tradition. It said in almost every case, almost in every case, you know, once the church, once some people come to faith in Christ and there's a church and the church begins to grow, in almost every case, the danger of syncretism arises because as soon as people become Christians and the church begins to meet, one of the big questions is how much of what we left can we bring in now? Now, that's a human impulse. I think we can understand that. How, how much can we now bring in uh, because that's, that's what we know. That's what we know. And so can we bring that in? And uh, I, I was at a meeting of... Uh, religious Christian leaders uh, under a moment of crisis and uh, was uh, invited to, summoned to a meeting in Manhattan. And uh, I've told her this in different contexts for different reasons, but I ended up at a table with uh, several, and, and most importantly, one very well-known African Anglican archbishop. So there were, there were several archbishops of the Anglican Church from Africa, and uh, I was very honored to be seated at their table. And, uh, and those are titanic figures. I mean, these, I have such respect for these Anglican archbishops. They, they are men of such deep faith and courage. I think uh, some of you heard me say in another context that one of them, I was concerned, looked... Uh, well, he just wasn't very much involved in conversation and being a typical American, I'm trying to draw him into the conversation. And he said, I'm sorry, I'm not a very good conversationalist. He said, just before flying here, 
uh, I had to go visit three widows of my priests who were killed by Islamic militants. Okay. That's, that puts a different cast on uh, why you're not so conversational. Um, I asked uh, one of the archbishops, just in a, in a moment, we're, just, we're, we're sharing a meal, we're just having a conversation, and I said, uh, what kind of pastoral issues? Because we were talking about marriage. That was a part of the emergency that brought us into this meeting. I was talking about marriage, and in particular, the crisis in the Anglican Church and confusion over marriage, which, by the way, the Anglican Church is messing up even more, even as we speak, and the most compromised position that's theologically ludicrous, they're going to bless same-sex unions but not perform them. I just, I love to hear the Apostle Paul write the letter to London on that one, but nonetheless, letter to Canterbury. But um, nonetheless, I asked, I walked right into this. I mean, I, I did. I'll just tell you, there are moments when you think, you know, Mueller, you're an idiot. Uh, just, uh, I, I walked right into this. And I said, well, pastorally, what are the biggest issues uh, that you face? And one of the Anglican bishops said, well, something you probably do not have to deal with yourself. And I said, what's that? And he said, a man comes to Christ. And one of his first pastoral questions is, what do I do with all my wives? I have never had that pastorally. That has, that has never, never happened to me. Uh, but, and by the way, I, I asked him how he, how he deals with that, and I'll go ahead and tell you what he said. He said, um, the leaders in the church must be the husband to one wife, and that must mean the woman you married at first is your one wife, but you must treat all these other women as sisters and support them financially, and, uh, and recognize their children as your own. I mean, it's kind of a mixed picture. It's just, that's just kind of it. But he said, that's, that's the best pastoral advice we give is uh, that uh, it, uh, this was not God's plan, but we're not going to leave people destitute and unattached and uh, uncared for. But this is, uh, this is not something that continue as if nothing ever happened. Well, in Crete... This family structure is such that you have those who are clearly trying to bring things in that are incompatible with the gospel. But the amazing thing is Apostle Paul doesn't say just kick them out because I think that would be what we might think would be, you know, it's a tumor, excise it. And elsewhere in the New Testament, those kinds of exhortations are given. But this shows you the power of the word, doesn't it? I mean, isn't it encouraging? This is the power of the preaching of God's word. I mean, because Paul's confidence here is that if the trustworthy word is preached by trustworthy preachers, it just may be that some of those who are evil beasts, lazy gluttons, insubordinate, rebellious, will actually be corrected and be sound in the faith. It's one of the most reassuring things I've ever heard. So you think, okay, well, how important is preaching? Well, the Apostle Paul says here that even inside a context of the most radical challenge to the authority and unity of the church, he says, you know, you preach the word, the trustworthy word, and maybe even some of those evil beasts and, uh, and lazy gluttons, insubordinate and worse, will be made sound in the faith. And then just remember the book of Acts, where you have someone like Apollos, mighty in the scriptures, who is a heretic, not too strong a word for it. And later, the church would have to declare someone who was teaching 
what Apollos was early teaching in Ephesus, would have to identify as a heretic. He's non-Trinitarian. But Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and corrected him according to the Scripture. And shortly thereafter, the Apostle Paul was sending him out as an evangelist. Isn't that amazing? So in other words, especially in the context of the early church, I mean, we, we, they, didn't, they didn't have the Scriptures as we have them. They're, they're in their apostolic days. They're having to follow apostolic authority and receive apostolic correction. They did. They did. At least some did. That's the encouragement. So, what, by the way, what's the answer to, you know, this kind of problem in the church? Well, the first thing is right church leadership, rightly preaching the word. That's it. Now, it, it, now, it doesn't mean that it resolves all problems because, as this book will later make clear, sometimes you've got to deal with people who just are unrepentant and they're resistant. They continue to be insubordinate. But this passage is so hard, so hard, we just can't afford to miss the promise and, and, and the assurance here. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. I wonder sometimes, and, and this is a lifelong struggle dealing with people and some of these issues, I wonder at times if, um, if we're shocked when the word works, when biblical preaching works. Um, kind of like one of the first times you know you share the gospel I had this as a teenager you share the gospel with someone and they appear to respond to the gospel with genuine interest that turns into something more than interest and you know they appear to be moving towards Christ and it's like you you're a little teenage evangelist you want to say seriously you know I did I know this is what I was told would happen but I don't see it with my own eyes that's, uh, that's the power of preaching. And Paul says, Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths. There's the Judaizers again. And, and, and perhaps with a mix of Gnosticism, by the way. I hope that makes sense. The word myth in the New Testament is never a good word. Only four times used in the New Testament. Never a good word. Cleverly devised myths, etc. Here is simply Jewish myths. So, Probably a mix of Judaism and Gnosticism, which also would be uh, something more likely to be found in Crete than, say, Jerusalem. The commands of people who turn away from the truth. We're going we're to stop there for the sake of time, but uh, I, I'm shocked by this passage. I think we're supposed to be shocked by this passage. But the passage doesn't end with a car wreck. It, it ends with the preaching of the word, you know, at least among some, having an effect to turn evil beasts and lazy gluttons and insubordinate into faithful followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And before we leave this, let's just recognize that, yes, this is talking about specific rebels against the gospel and church order and scripture. But to some extent, we're all Cretans left to our own devices. And in our own way, the conquering of our own heart is no less miraculous than what we see here. Let's pray together. Father, we're just so thankful for the profound power of your word, infinite in authority and shocking 
Father, may this word be used in our hearts to make us more faithful and to warn us from an evil path and to ground us in faith and obedience to the trustworthy word. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.